So good afternoon, everybody. Thank you so much for coming for this uh, lunch hour session. Uh, my name is Latsen. I'm a senior architect for our professional services division for AWS. Uh, this is literally a fourth continent that I live and work on, and uh, it kind of explains my accent to a degree. Um, and uh, I'll be talking to you about uh, simplifying Microsoft architectures with AWS services. So, what can you expect from the session? Um, so, being a level 200 session, we're gonna, um, I'm going to focus on um, explaining the simplicity and automation of uh, deploying workloads in AWS, specifically Microsoft workloads. Um, also, uh, the best practices and uh, common architectures and patterns that are followed. Um, we'll look at, uh, start off with the identity management aspect to uh, SQL Server, developer story, and administrator story. And at the very uh, end of the presentation, I do have a little bit of a surprise for you guys, uh, but uh, you will find out as we get there. So, who, what do we use Microsoft Workloads generally for? What do we use it on, uh, on AWS? Uh, um, first and foremost, it's the, uh, corporate applications. Um, these are your internal applications. These are your Exchange servers, your SharePoint servers, uh, your Skype for Business, your uh, Dynamics AX, CRM, and so on. Um, then there's uh, a number of line of business applications, be that uh, the, the ERP applications or the, um, um, that are f effectively specific to your business, or uh, um, .NET applications and custom applications that have been built. Um, there's also end-user computing, um, you know, everything from uh, you know, the workstations and uh, deployment of the same, configuration management of the same, and of course the uh, developer platform and tools which we're gonna cover. So this is a brief overview of the type of services that we have and that we use for these particular categories, such as business applications, corporate applications, and user. And you can see the underlying services um, that, that underpin and uh, support uh, these type of workloads, uh, DevOps and infrastructure beneath it. Um, however, um, security and information security is over-encompassing uh, um, aspect that encompasses both the DevOps and infrastructure as well as um, all the different types of applications that we're going to be running on top of it. So, let's start with architecture. So this is the kind of common type of architecture you're going to find um, when, when it comes to like Initial first deployments of uh, of Microsoft workloads in AWS. You know this this is a type of architecture that uh, um, you will commonly see. You know if a customer, let's say, is uh, uh, just deploying a single workload in there, trying to test, uh, uh, you know, kick the tires or use a test environment or QA. Um, if you actually go ahead and search for AWS Quick Start, you will actually uh, uh, find a uh, CloudFormation uh, easy deployment of the uh, of architectures like this for Exchange, for SharePoint, for um, uh, for Link or Skype for Business, um, and, and few others, and they kind of follow this principle 
um, uh, when it, and, and a pattern when it comes to deployment, you're more than welcome to go ahead and kick the tires on it, see how it works, see what the performance is, um, uh, run it as your POC and find out what the, uh, you know, uh, what, what the performance measurements are, what the, you know, capacity, um, uh, you know, expectations can be, and so on. Um, so, typically what you have, you have the public and private subnet, um, and as you can see, those, they're all encompassed within a VPC, which is, uh, um, a, you know, a virtual private cloud. Um, and um, the individual subnets, as you can see, they, they, we have one for each availability zone to provide uh, the availability between those. Um, and, uh, and that also provides effectively sufficient availability for most DR scenarios as well. Um, specifically for Microsoft workloads as well as uh, um, uh, Linux sub workloads. Um, so, what we keep uh, traditionally in the public subnet, we have a remote desktop gateway, and then we have the, uh, the net gateway or the net servers that are doing network translation for the internal servers to pull updates when they need, should they need it. Um, and then the, the private subnet does not, is not exposed to internet in any way. Um, and uh, the remote desktop gateway is being used by remote users to access as well as administrators. Um, and uh, here we go. Um, using a, a elastic load balancer, um, but also uh, internally by deploying, oops, I went a little bit too far. Um, by deploy, internally by, deploy, uh, by um, either connecting via VPN or AWS Direct Connect, um, you can also um, um, access the same application or with, you know, with internal zones uh, via internal elastic load balancer. Um, you would usually, uh, uh, there's another aspect, you can have a protected subnet, which is more like it doesn't even have any routing to, pub, uh, to the VPC net gateways. Uh, for any pooling of the, of the data from the outside. Um, one thing that, that I'm going to now cover in more detail is each of these aspects, um, besides the actual um, deployment of the, of the network infrastructure identification, but we, you know, we'll start soon with the, with the actual um, uh, directory services. In this case, I have AWS directory service, uh, which can be used. Uh, we have Microsoft AD as part of it, or uh, we can, you can actually drop um, uh, DC servers um, in, in, in the same way um, in this uh, particular architecture. Um, so, once again, um, it seems to be skipping. Uh, so this is what I talked about. Uh, you can have RDP over HTTPS access um, to um, administer uh, your entire ar architecture if you're coming from the outside. Um, and uh, where the remote desktop gateway servers effectively sit uh, there as your, uh, as your bastion servers, uh, if, you, you know, for, if you're administering it remotely. If you're coming from the inside, you obviously would be coming directly via VPN or Direct Connect. Um, so, what's one of the really important aspects around building out um, and moving all of your workloads, Microsoft workloads specifically, um, into a cloud platform such as AWS. Um, 
they're not uh, um, you usually have these supporting services uh, that the rest of the other services or workloads that you're deploying, whether they be enterprise applications, B2B applications, whether those be custom applications and so on, depend on. So usually you'll have at the center of it, you'll have Active Directory. Everything needs an Active Directory. You'll have possibly a, a, a system center deployment, which would be your um, uh, SCOM or SCCM, uh, whether it's used for monitoring or configuration management. And, um, and in a lot of the cases, also the, um, uh, the SQL Server or SQL Server Farm seems to be um, something that uh, uh, the DBAs like to consolidate in a central location and then provide that as a service to all the other applications as they, as they need it. So that wasn't reflected in the previous pattern, but um, uh, the, the, the common pattern used when it comes to um, these type of applications and a multi-VPC deployment is effectively using a shared service VPC. And as you can see, it's um, uh, usually when you're planning, which in, in a lot of our cases has been, um, you know, from the lessons of the, you know, from the trenches and professional services engagements that I've done, um, they, a lot of our customers moving all out into AWS. So this is a good pattern for moving all out and most, moving most of the architecture over there. Um, then uh, um, also when you need to have um, uh, your replicated services, such as Active Directory um, or proxies that you need to run in there. Um, and this is, this is a great pattern um, for many reasons. First of all, because that's necessary for a lot of uh, Microsoft workloads, as, as, you as you probably know, enterprise workloads themselves are fairly chatty. Uh, they need to be close to, um, to AD, um, to DC servers. Um, also, uh, uh, you know, it allows for these resources to be centrally shared, and also it offloads a lot of traffic that would be going via your uh, VPN or direct connect connection between, let's say, your uh, data center uh, and uh, AWS. Um, you can also uh, use it to limit VPN and control VPN traffic as it's coming through, uh, and it allows you also to build out very strong security and compliance programs. Um, so um, you, you are able to actually implement a lot of ways of securing communication, of controlling what type of um, um, communication goes through and how that kind of gets distributed to what workloads and so on. So what's you're probably asking yourself, this is great. Okay, so now I know what my base deployment is. Something I, I know how to kick the tires in, something I know how to deploy individual applications. Um, now I know how to start actually migrating my entire infrastructure into AWS. How do I do it? Um, we do have several tools, and I will touch on some of those um, uh, for deployment and uh, uh, for continuous deployment and uh, uh, CD, CDCI and, and also uh, for configuration management and so on. Um, but at the base of it all, uh, from a DevOps perspective and what's our infrastructure as a code is CloudFormation. Um, some of you already know what this is. For those of you that don't know, it's a JSON formatted document that describes the configuration of how everything is going to be deployed. Um, the J JSON is there mostly because, uh, you know, there's also a lot of different uh, frameworks like Troposphere and uh, um, different tools like yeah, Terraformer and so on that allow you to actually build out um, uh, the uh, CloudFormation templates. There's also kind of already pre-provisioned tasks on a lot of 
um, uh, you know, CDCR platforms such as Jenkins and so on that directly support creation of the uh, cloud formation itself. Um, and um, the deployment uh, of cloud formation effectively um, is referred to as a stack. Uh, for the most part, you would, uh, you would actually break up separate stacks. Um, you'll see, for example, in the AWS Quick Start that I mentioned earlier, that we, it's a multi-stack deployment. And you'll see that we break out the stack, first of all, for uh, AD as a separate one, the SQL as a separate one, then the application as the last one. Um, the reason for that is that if something happens during the deployment of any of these individual ones, it doesn't actually roll back the entire thing um, so that you are able to effectively, ha you know, uh, deploy infrastructure in layers, data services in layers, and application web services in the same layers, and have full control over it. And having a master cloud formation that kind of controls and uh, defines in which order these things get deployed. It is a fairly easy language to comprehend. Um, you can use literally, I mean, most of us use any kind of type of text editor. Uh, Visual Studio. Um, uh, also has templates for actually creating CloudFormation templates, uh, and um, or I, I basically use uh, uh, Sublime, and um, you can use Atom or anything like that. Um, it, it, it's, it's magic, like you wouldn't believe, of a sort where you effectively, you know, be, besides repeatable resources that you might already have and that we provide for you through the Quick Start guides, um, you can effectively build out your entire infrastructure in next to no time. Um, so, um, as you can see, the, the whole uh, workflow as it goes, you will save it locally on S3 bucket, then it would, uh, AWS CloudFormation would create a stack, and then the service, CloudFormation service, would start constructing your entire environment. Uh, we also have a CloudFormation designer for those specific, actually, uh, CloudFormations on the Quick Start guides that I mentioned. You can go ahead and plug it in, and it will actually create a Visio type diagram that shows you um, uh, what type of infrastructure it's about to create in a visual manner. Um, other things uh, that we have in addition to the services that I'm going to be discussing now that help you uh, put, uh, um, you know, and create uh, infrastructures as well as migrate your existing infrastructures into AWS, we do have a number of what I refer to as the work services. Um, we have um, uh, workspaces, which is actually virtual desktops and allows you to uh, create um, 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 thousands of virtual desktops for your remote uh, users as well as your internal users and so on. Um, and uh, we have customers that are literally using it in thousands. It's extremely popular. Um, we do have several options on, on the type of uh, instance types and uh, um, and, and kind of default OS that is being used, but if you prefer something like Windows 10 and stuff, you can actually create a Windows 10 image and import it, and that can be used uh, for remote desktops, uh, you know, aspects. Um, I strongly encourage you to use it. It's something that I use every day. Um, and uh, we also have Workspaces Application Manager, uh, which is there to actually manage the configuration aspects of workspaces that you've deployed. So that would be uh, deployment of um, um, all of your applications, everything from Office to other applications, uh, to decommissioning of those applications, running update on the applications on your desktop, um, as well as uh, um, um, uh, you know, packaging a virtualized environment for your applications to run on, on workspaces. Um, WorkDocs, 
Um, WorkTalks is basically our, uh, our document sharing, um, you know, file sharing solution, similar to uh, the likes of uh, uh, OneDrive, Google Drive, uh, Dropbox, and so on. Um, it allows you to al allows you to collaborate, share in a secure way, um, uh, and work on documents together in teams. Um, and what's great about it is that. Uh, uh, it's built upon the uh, S3 or secure store service that, uh, um, that provides you with uh, 11 nines of durability uh, and uh, it, it's extremely strong, easy to use solution uh, with amazing infrastructure behind it. And then there's WorkMail as well. So we provide an alternative to um, um, a managed service for uh, mail. Uh, if, you, if you wish for us to manage mail for you and all that, you can effectively use work mail instead of, let's say, exchange and so on, um, in, uh, in addition to the rest of the services. Um, and, uh, of course, the directory service. I mentioned we had a workshop early on today. Uh, talked about uh, all the aspects of AWS directory services. Um, you do have an AD connector, which is more of just a proxy uh, for your Active Directory um, in AWS. Those are more like for lighter or fewer workloads if you're running. Uh, but we do also have Microsoft AD, a full-blown Microsoft AD that now even supports uh, schema extensions and everything. There's a fully managed uh, solution that, uh, um, uh, that is fully available and uh, we can take care of it and effectively you can uh, you can extend your directory there or run your entire Active Directory. We have, have several customers that are running their directory from AWS via um, AWS directory services. And more importantly, re this was a very recent announcement. Uh, right now, you can run uh, Windows Server uh, 2016 on Amazon EC2. Uh, what does that mean? Besides running Windows Server 2016 data center with your desktop experience and, you know, all the, all the great and new features that have come with it, you can also run Windows Server 2016 nano server. Um, you can uh, migrate all of your applications to your nano server. Um, um, and, the, and, and there are several, uh, um, uh, several articles on how to do that, and we can share that through our blog post. Uh, and uh, uh, there's also Windows Server 2016 with containers, where you can effectively run Docker containers on top of uh, Windows Server 2016. So all you really have to do, start a Windows Server 2016 uh, instance and uh, run this particular command, docker run Microsoft sample.net, and you can, it will actually run a sample um, a Docker container for you. You can see how it runs, you can kick the tires and play with it. And more importantly, we do also have an offer Windows Server 2016 with SQL Server 2016 now, and all the great new features that 2016 has got to offer. And I will cover some of those as we go again. So, let's start with the first and foremost thing that you probably need. What do you need? What is the first thing that most of us need when we start migrating Microsoft workloads specifically into AWS, and what makes it different from all the open source and Linux ones. The first need, and the first thing is in the identity and access management, right? Um, so um, basically the first, first aspect is authorization and authentication from a Windows perspective, for specifically for the Windows workloads. But where does the story start? It starts with our IAM service. Uh, AWS identity, I, uh, identity and access management. Um, 
which basically uh, provides you with role-based access control to managing all of your uh, resources and services in AWS account. Uh, we provide you more multi-factor authentication, and, uh, and it's integrated, obviously, with all the AWS services. The role-based being the key here, okay? For the most part, first thing, when I come to some of the customers, they go, you know, uh, can you go ahead and uh, create a whole bunch of IAM users for us so we can start using it? Um, this is not what we recommend because for the most part, for um, Microsoft shops and, um, um, and, and sites and customers that are actually using um, uh, Active Directory, they want to, they control uh, Active Directory and services specifically, um, you know, centrally from the Active Directory, whether the Active Directory is running uh, uh, on-premise or in AWS. Uh, they want to kind of consolidate all of the security and all of the users and everything there. Um, so, uh, so I'll discuss shortly now, effectively, uh, uh, delegation using uh, federating identities from Active Directory by ADFS um, to our STS and to our IAM service. Uh, then they would take on one of the roles over here, and those roles will have uh, security policies that are attached to it, which kind of spell out what the, what the user is allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. <clears throat> So, uh, common approaches um, to, to extending uh, effectively your identity management you know, into AWS um, is uh, using AWS directory services, um, using federation uh, to AWS services to your Microsoft workloads, using claims-based access or SSO, um, using federation clients such as uh, ADFS, uh, Ping Federate or Okta, uh, and there are many others, um, and, uh, or using Kerberos to actually delegate your authority there. Um, one of the things while I'm on Kerberos and the whole thing is that, uh, you know, um, uh, what I showed you earlier was uh, using the Elastic Load Balancer, with, uh, which is our service, um, which kind of simplifies in where you don't need to effectively use uh, any appliances or, God forbid, for hardware. Um, but you use a solid, scalable service like e, um, ELB. Um, ELB does not support um, NTLM being kind of somewhat archaic way of authenticating. Um, it does support, which is uh, more secure and, and obviously faster and better, um, either using claims authentication or using Kerberos. Um, so back to the actual identity management. Um, one, of the, one of the most common approaches, uh, you can uh, just extend your single domain to multiple sites, just drop another, uh, you know, two DCs uh, over in AWS in each availability zone uh, and uh, just directly extend um, your, uh, um, your Active Directory there. Or you can have a uh, one subdomain per site if you have multiple sites and you want to manage them by subdomains. Uh, you would effectively, this would be, let's say, you know, cloud.company.local versus cloud.local that you have running on your on-premise side of things. Um, or you can have one forest per site and a trust relationship um, that is established from your on-premise uh, to uh, the, uh, the, the Active Directory, that you, the redundant one that you've deployed in AWS. Um, you can have one or two-way uh, trust established um, depending on your need. Uh, you can also use AWS directory services, specifically Microsoft AD, uh, for this. Um, 
So how does the federation work? Um, you have, uh, and this is what I explained earlier, you have your Active Directory, which is kind of on top. You have AWS IAM service that I showed, uh, talked about earlier. You have AD users over there, and they need to assume roles and access the services for, um, uh, for, for administration or provisioning. Um, so federating via um, ADFS would allow you to, uh, you know, uh, to assume those identities and uh, um, assume those roles and have access, appropriate access to, and secure access to the services. Um, also, here we go. Here we go. Also, you can have isolated domains. It seems my clicker is skipping. Uh, you can have isolated domains. Um, uh, you can, uh, you, then you can establish, and this is kind of a common federation scenario for a lot of those cloud services. Those of you that have been working with cloud in the, in the past um, and various different cloud platforms, this, is, this was one of the common uh, patterns and so on, where you can establish a federation. You would have your you know, ADFS, ADFS proxies, and um, you establish federation as well as the synchronization um, to the Active Directory uh, deployed on the AWS side, uh, and, uh, and then you would basically uh, be accessing it via those federated identities. Uh, hello, clicker. You can also use, obviously, the same with uh, AWS directory services, specifically with Microsoft AD. So ADFS scenarios. For those of you that have worked with um, um, Active Directory Federation services, uh, these will probably be familiar to you. Um, you can have a fully implemented ADFS, which basically uh, has uh, core authentication services exposed to the internet by ADFS proxy, which is the scenario that I just introduced right now. Uh, that is possibly the best one. Why that one works? Because you might be federating to some other internet services out there and some other, you know, SaaS services from different providers and so on, and you can use it in the same way without having to redeploy a separate set of ADFS service. Um, you can have a, a firewall published ADFS. Uh, firewall exposes, um, there will be effectively a proxy uh, uh, you know, that you've defined. And uh, unfortunately, when you do that, there's, a, uh, um, there's certain security features that, that, uh, that the enabled security control cannot be uh, turned on an ADFS for that. So it would be effectively just doing um, uh, reverse proxy configuration into your ADFS. Uh, and uh, as such, because of the less security, I don't really suggest doing those. Um, and then you have the non-published ADFS, um, and the VPN published ADFS. They're basically the same in a sense that VPN published one is probably more, uh, uh, you know, relevant to deployment in AWS where you would have federation going across the VPN. Um, most likely not really applicable in most cases with us, but, uh, you know, if you happen to be running, the only problem really with that is that your ADFS proxies are not exposed to the internet and as such, uh, you can't really extend uh, federation to any other system that may, you may be using or any other internet service. So, what is the um, what is the Active Directory Federation Services deployment look like? Pretty much something like this. 
you would have your ADFS proxies up in the uh, public subnet and the ADFS servers running internally uh, with, uh, with DC servers uh, uh, behind that, and you would have established federation synchronization back. And, um, and as such, you can also have that kind of also deployed to federate to any other systems or to any other sites uh, and to any other services if you're running it straight out of, the, out of a, uh, AWS specifically. You can also replace that um, with uh, AWS directory services, specifically the, the DC servers on the bottom, and then and use that together with your deployed ADFS and ADFS proxies in there. So what this is, pretty much from an overview perspective, we have covered um, you know, the, the actual identity management and extending and federating into AWS specifically for Microsoft workloads. Um, the SQL Server, um, there are uh, several licensing options. You can uh, purchase an Amazon uh, uh, instance uh, uh, that includes Windows and SQL, like what I showed you uh, with Windows uh, 2016, with SQL 2016. We do have different versions as well on different AMIs you can use. Um, or you can uh, purchase uh, your Windows AMI and install SQL Server yourself, but bring your own license. Um, both authentication methods are, are being um, supported, and you can have full control over it. Um, you can run any type of uh, high availability and DR scenario on SQL, uh, the most common one being the always-on availability groups, which is actually um, um, an evolution of log shipping, um, and kind of a third generation after mirroring um, and so on. Or you could be running failover cluster instances. Um, the main difference with the failover cluster instances um, is, uh, so this would be basically your, your, your common always-on availability group uh, with synchronous commit. Um, separate things. Um, you always-on availability group for SQL 2012 has uh, allows um, synchronous commit between uh, uh, two instances and uh, uh, four asynchronous commit instances, and uh, 2014 supports two instances for synchronous and um, eight for asynchronous, and, uh, uh, and those can be also read replicas, and you can use them for, for reporting, or you can use them to run analytics on it, and so on. Uh, and uh, 2016 allows actually uh, three synchronous commit servers with three in total um, and, uh, and, and, and many more asynchronous replicas that are going to be running. So this is a very common scenario, very common deployment that we have for most of our customers. You can also have a multi-region always-on availability group. As you can see, um, I have two AWS regions. I will actually be talking about specifically this uh, and showing you a demo of it on Thursday at 1 o'clock. It's a Win, uh, Win 403 session, so I encourage you to come and see it. Um, so you can effectively run um, synchronous commit between two availability zones and have uh, your DR site running, let's say, in uh, AWS uh, uh, in, in a different region, or it can be on-premise uh, with asynchronous commit over there. Um, so now this is permitting the latency. Uh, I would say if you, I would encourage you to test it, but you can actually run even synchronous commit um, you know, between two regions in U.S. 
um, and uh, the, you know, provided that you have uh, AWS Direct Connect, you can also, um, you should be able to kind of test out uh, uh, you know, some synchronous commit scenarios. But for the most part, this is the common uh, uh, pattern and the common, uh, you know, implementation uh, that we do and see. Um, so next up, these are the failover cluster instances. The, 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 the difference with those is they, uh, um, you would have multiple nodes, um, and uh, that actually allows you the failover on the node side of things. Um, whereas the, uh, the actual storage is shared between multiple nodes. So it doesn't really provide you with data redundancy uh, where the always an availability groups do, you know, um, and mirroring before them and so on. Uh, we do, however, have uh, um, third-party uh, uh, partners, ISVs, uh, like Softness and Sios that provide very uh, amazing solutions effectively for providing shared storage specifically uh, for running SQL in that way. I would encourage you to look those up um, and they have a way of using IDEBS or S3 specifically for that, which is amazing. Um, we also have Amazon RDS. Uh, we do have several databases, but more importantly, I want to uh, you know, focus on uh, uh, SQL Server. Um, we do uh, run SQL Server. Um, we allow you to run up to 30 databases. Um, uh, we allow Windows of mixed authentication. Um, we have uh, optional managed uh, multi-AZ deployment as well, so you can actually run it in multiple availability zones, and you can define how many and what. Um, for compliance reasons, we have, we, allow, uh, we have encryption address with transparency data uh, encryption, and uh, uh, we allow you to use SSL to secure data in transit. Um, we do have native backup and restore. Um, uh, we use that for backups, and you can define those backups specifically uh, when deploying and running um, SQL. Um, so um, SQL um, uh, in RDS specifically uses uh, actually our own special version of mirroring to uh, uh, provide high availability across multiple zones. It has automatic uh, failover, automatic host replacement, uh, backups, and software patching. You can actually switch that off if you want to, but uh, um, that's what we provide by as part of our service. Um, it pretty much looks the same like what I showed you earlier, but this is a managed service, and as such, we do not provide you with an OS-level access there. Um, because of that, that doesn't make it suitable uh, for a lot of enterprise, um, uh, enterprise workload scenarios, specifically on the Microsoft side. So um, anything that is, has extensive use of uh, store procedures, as you know, store procedures have... Uh, um, have file system level access, and as such, because we don't allow that from a managed service perspective, um, we won't let you know the you know applications or enterprise applications such as SharePoint, uh, such as Exchange, such as uh, uh, Link or um, Skype for Business, um, uh, they won't be able to use the service. But your .NET applications that might use more simple scenarios would be great uh, for our managed RDS service, right? Um, if you happen to now run SQL Server as part of our managed service, as part of uh, AWS RDS um, offering, uh, we do not provide uh, integration services, reporting, and analysis services, um, such as also like SQL Agent, you know, Service Broker, Master Data Services, and all that. However, 
um, you can run those on EC2 and you can connect it to same, the, the same way to the actual managed servers on that other side. So to kind of, to kind of wrap that up on, you know, um, in why, why you would use it is really if you don't want to manage uh, SQL Server or if, if, if it's for some specific workloads that um, uh, your, I don't know, your DBS don't want to manage, you want to leave it to our DBS to manage, that is a great solution. But bear in mind the level of support and for what type of applications you can use it. Developers. Okay, so hopefully we have some developers over here. We have... Uh, our guys have done tremendous work on this side. I used to work with, uh, you know, um, well, uh, on the other side with the, um, with, with the Visual Studio team in the past and all that. And I must say, um, uh, we have some incredibly smart people that have done tremendous work in integrating uh, AWS uh, with Visual Studio. Uh, so we provide you with uh, also uh, AWS tools for Windows PowerShell. Um, integration to Visual Studio, ASP.NET session provider that you can use, uh, trace listeners and so on. Uh, we provide you with um, um, all the utility APIs that you can, um, that you can access, uh, service clients and support uh, all the way up to um, ASP.NET uh, 5 as well as .NET Core, right? Um, what does it look like? It looks like this. Um, you basically, it's fully integrated. You can swap between uh, regions and you can access and create um, um, your resources and the services and you can uh, also edit those and use them like you would in a console. But more importantly, you can also, you have so many different, you'll see the AWS uh, a kind of branch of all the different uh, projects you can create. You can create for every service that we got out there, uh, simple notification service, simple queuing service for decoupling uh, of your systems and uh, um, uh, even, even things like, um, um, uh, Kinesis and so on. There's uh, um, different uh, console projects, as you can see, and you can create web applications that you can just directly publish to uh, AWS. And like I earlier said, also you can create things like CloudFormation templates and so on. Um, there's tremendous work that has been done in integrating Visual Studio, uh, uh, more than I've seen so in a, you know, with integration in, for any other platform out there. So. For developers out there, I really implore you to take a look at those. Um, other things that developers can look forward to, there's an integration directly with Elastic Beanstalk, which is our deployment DevOps service that allows you to deploy um, uh, your so solutions, updates, and uh, um, services uh, directly to um, EC2. Um, you, you can deploy it uh, with automatic log rotation to S3. Um, we also have several other um, uh, uh, services that, that you can use um, in the same context. Uh, we, we offer code commit, which is effectively our Git that you can use. Uh, uh, code deploy, which is kind of a, uh, a more, um, uh, more detailed way of deploying uh, solutions and updates to the servers. Uh, an alternative to Elastic Beanstalk uh, and, uh, you know, more um, I, I, I would say, like, you have a lot more um, 
control over how you want to deploy it, the, uh, the way you want to deploy it to multiple servers specifically, things like rolling updates and so on, and access to um, you know, any errors during the deployment specifically of your packages, let's say if, they, if something happened on specific servers and all that. So it gives you this insight as well as the version control so that you can roll back and roll back earlier deployment uh, in case something went wrong. And there's code pipeline on top of all that. And code pipeline is amazing because uh, it provides a workflow for the, uh, uh, for the entire DevOps pipeline from code commit, code deploy, and other services like Jenkins and so on, uh, all the way uh, from, uh, you know, from development to test to QA to production. Um, there's uh, .NET SDK, PowerShell integration that I mentioned, and native integration also into other um, um, non-Visual Studio IDEs that you can use. Administration. This is pretty, pretty cool, pretty amazing stuff. A lot of people that go firsthand uh, and deploy uh, solutions, uh, specifically Microsoft solutions in our environment, they're like, okay, we want to run uh, yeah, our... Um, uh, we want to use PowerShell to actually manage not just our workloads, but also AWS services. We offer that, but on top of that, we have something called an SSM server um, and EC2 run commands. And what an SSM server is, it's basically a free service that we offer to everybody. Um, it's a configuration management server that works like a desired state configuration, and it uses um, uh, what we call documents, um, which uh, and, and EC2 run commands, um, which could be used to uh, uh, configure, update, patch, uh, and do any remote administration automatically and maintain the state of each of your uh, uh, Windows servers automatically. It can automatically put uh, your Windows servers on your domain. It can automatically patch them. It can do any type of configuration management uh, uh, task um, whether you define it yourself, and we do provide you with several of those, like join domain, update, look for latest updates, and run uh, a full um, asset uh, list of all the things that you're running on your uh, Windows server specifically. This was very much built for running Windows workloads, and this is, you know, in addition to everything else, proof of all the love we have uh, and support we have for Microsoft and Microsoft workloads. Um, these are the, the, the examples of the SSM commands. Um, um, uh, oh, sorry, uh, run commands with SSM. Uh, as you can see, uh, these are all the Windows ones specific. Uh, Listing uh, Windows inventory, uh, update uh, config, run PowerShell script, configure Windows update, install applications, and so on and so on. You know, you'll specify MSA package and all that. And then in case somebody changes something on any of the servers, the SSM server will make sure that that change is rolled back and, and it will re-update the re-patch uh, at a specific server. Monitoring. Monitoring, last but not least, before I have this uh, little surprise for you guys. Um, the, main, the main services that we have for monitoring are CloudWatch, CloudTrail. Uh, CloudWatch uh, provides uh, kind of um, instance-level monitoring, but it doesn't provide application-level monitoring. Uh, for those, you can use, you can actually write those logs directly to Cloud CloudWatch, and that's fairly easy to do. Uh, there's also a number of different uh, um, uh, third-party 
uh, uh, monitoring applications that do that for you, and they uh, or they write to their own service, uh, such as Datadog, uh, such as App Dynamics, um, and so on. The great solutions. I encourage you to look at those. Uh, CloudTrail is your um, uh, service that actually uh, uh, provides um, uh, a, an entire inventory of everything that you're running uh, in AWS and tracking. It also allow. Uh, uh, sorry. Um, I mixed it up. Config is the service that provides the entire inventory of everything that you're running, and, uh, um, and you can also write policies uh, like governance around uh, what each account or each, um, you know, each VPC needs to have and all that. So you can enforce those policies or you can report on those policies you know, back to your ops team. Um, you can also provide a level of automation with Lambda, for example, and with serverless applications like that. Um, like if, um, let's say, if resources are not tagged, and I really strongly suggest you tag all of your resources, um, that tags are either automated or they enforced. And in some cases, I've built solutions where, on top of config, that, uh, um, that go ahead and if uh, people don't respond to tagging, for example, and to these kind of governance tasks, to destroy those resources. And that way, force people to use uh, AWS properly and to use your environment the way you intended it to be used, right? Um, and then CloudTrail is really kind of, it logs every single API call. So even whether you're doing it from a console, whether you're doing it from Visual Studio, whether you're doing it from a PowerShell, um, all of these are effectively, in the end, API calls that are made to the services. And as such, it provides an audit of everything that has been done. VPC flow logs, extremely important. Um, these, are, these are the things where you actually can, uh, you have logs um, that provide you with insight in all the traffic that is happening between your instances and what's hitting them or not. And that you can use to automate um, any actions for possible, um, you know, attacks or intrusion detection or anything like that. From a security perspective, those things are, are amazing. Um, there's also Trusted Advisor. Trusted Advisor, you need to look at. It actually goes ahead and lists out, um, you know, all the things, um, all the best practices. Uh, it, uh, it flags any resources that you didn't deploy or secure properly, and anything that where you might be wasting too much money and, uh, you know, bringing up excessive cost, um, and provides you with solutions and suggestions on how to provide. But. Um, without further ado, I will uh, go ahead and in introduce uh, Bill Roth. He's a VP of Enterprise Systems from Hascorp, uh, and he's got a great customer story. So I told you something about running AWS, uh, running Microsoft uh, works, well, workloads in AWS. He will, uh, let's hear it for somebody who's had a lot of experience doing so. Zlatan, <clears throat> thank you. Um, as he mentioned, my name is Bill Roth, and I'm Vice President of Enterprise Systems for Hess Corporation. If you're not familiar with Hess, we are a global oil and gas company based in Houston. Uh, currently, we're in the business of exploring for and producing hydrocarbons offshore and onshore here in the U.S. and around the world. Um, our AWS story actually started back in 2013 when Hess was a very different company. At the time, we were what's known as an integrated oil and gas company with not only exploration and production business, but refining, marketing, and retail. Uh, anyone who lives on the East Coast might be familiar with our Hess branded gas stations. And um, back in 2013, we sold off that business. <clears throat> At the time, when you carved out a business of our size and sold off 
a major division, you know, the state of the art was to go out and procure tons of hardware, um, build massive redundancy of your environment, get it ready for the buyer, and then turn it over uh, and give them not only the business, but also give them a very elongated agreement where they, um, they could run on your hardware for, in some cases, many years. We decided in 2013 to try something different and to move the carved out businesses to AWS. So at the time, we sold six different businesses, some of them with as many as 170 applications, and we're able to move them to AWS in, in less than nine months. The, um, you know, the tradition of having to build the infrastructure and run it yourself for a long time just didn't make any sense to, to me at the time, and we felt that there was a better way to do that. So, so some facts. Um, we moved all kinds of Windows workloads. We were one big integrated oil and gas company back at the time. We had a single exchange environment. We had one massive SharePoint farm. We were across multiple data centers. We ran hundreds and hundreds of applications, uh, SharePoint, uh, Documentum, SAP, Hyperion, Dynamics, Salesforce, you know, hundreds of custom .NET applications, you name it, we ran it. And our job was to kind of carve out each of those and move what we could to, uh, to the AWS environment. So th three phases. The first phase of the divestiture, we moved 170 applications. It took us six months. And at the time, Amazon didn't have all the frameworks and quick start guides and all the other tools that uh, Zlatan's talked about now. So we kind of figured that out as we went. But uh, still, to be able to move 170 applications over six months was, was pretty incredible. Uh, but we got better. And the second divestiture was 90 applications. We were able to do that in three months. Uh, the more telling stat that's not on here, when we carved out the first bit of business, 170 applications for our marketing business, my bill at Amazon was $500,000 a month. And we, we, didn't, we didn't care. We were giving it to the buyer. So anytime we couldn't fix a problem, we just bought more disk, and we bought more servers, and we made things faster, and we bought more redundancy. But then when I carved out the second part of business, the knowledge that we gained and the maturity that we gained around how to optimize our Windows workloads, yes, it was a smaller carve-out, but our bill at the end of the second divestiture was $50,000 a month. So we moved about half as many applications, but cut the bill by about 90%. Now, I will say that, you know, Jeff Bezos and the team helped us with some massive price cuts along the way, but a lot of it was just getting smarter about how to optimize our workloads as we, uh, as we got ready to carve them out. So now that we've done that within the businesses that we've sold, now we're moving it to our core business. So my team is currently in the business of um, moving as much of our Windows estate as we can to, to the AWS cloud. Uh, we've got integrating networking with Direct Connect, everything that Zlatan's talked about so far, using ADFS with EC2, using AD on-prem. We, we've done all that, and, and it works really, really well. Um, you'll see in the top of the slide just some examples of the kind of applications we moved, HANA, Documentum, Oracle, Hyperion. So, so just a couple of things I want to sh share with you about my experience having done this for three years. I've not yet met a workload that can't go to Amazon. Um, yeah, some are harder than others. Some have tight integrations. Some are real chatty. Some are poorly written. Some need a lot of disks. Some need a faster network. Um, 
you know, some, some need some, some, some work by your developers who maybe got a little lazy when they built it. But at the end of the day, with enough energy and passion, we found that we were able to move every single targeted workload to, uh, to Amazon. But it's not always just lift it and shift it. A lot of times it takes tuning. A lot of times it takes re-architecting. But so far, my team has not yet met an application that, that won't go and won't go well and perform as well, if not better, than it, than it did on-prem. There, um, there were a lot of detractors when we started our journey. We find that our infrastructure team is generally the last uh, to get on board with the journey. Developers get excited. They learn new tools. Uh, infrastructure guys get scared. Um, that's just the way our experience has been. Maybe it's different in other people's shops. But with, um, with a lot of support and a lot of training and a lot of guidance and a lot of senior leadership support, so far we have a lot more. Nowadays we have a lot more supporters than, than detractors, and that's a major shift from, from 18 months ago. Um, the most important thing that I want to share, as, as Zlatan shares all these really cool tools and technologies that, that, that Amazon is coming out with literally every, every week and every month, this is a significant maturity curve for, for our company. Um, every day we're looking for ways to optimize and automate. And a simple example of that is when we, when we go live with a typical workload, the developers and the users will say it has to be on 24 by 7 for dev, test, and prod. <clears throat> and then we kind of chuckle at that, and we push back and ask for a window. You know, just give me two or three hours in the evening I can shut your, your dev environment off. And invariably, they, they give in on that, and then we push it further. And then, and then we get to on-demand um, firing up of dev and test. And now we're moving toward uh, fully encapsulated code that instantiates dev and test on demand, and we actually have no dev and test environments. I mean, that's the typical maturity, I find, of environments like this. Production is a little bit different. You need to have it on all the time, and thankfully, Amazon has great tools for high availability and disaster recovery um, and management that Zlatan talked about. But we find a lot of value in being able to change the model around how we run dev and test. Uh, instances get right-sized every day. We found in our, our migration to AWS many, many instances of applications that were completely over, over-provisioned, um, you know, something to the tune of 90 or 95 percent. And as we, as we build out in Amazon, what we do is we build out for the smaller instance size, and then we scale up if we have to, as opposed to a traditional model, which says you over-provision because you don't want to have to go back and buy new hardware because it's just too hard to put that in. And uh, as I said before, we're, we're building our, our test and dev uh, environments on demand. So overall, just wanted to share with you, I know uh, it was brief and that's all the time they gave me, but uh, I just wanted to share with you that as it, as it, as it relates to moving Windows workloads to Amazon um, from a real customer experience, and, and our shop probably isn't that different from any, anyone else's Windows shop out there. If, uh, if you, if you had it, we had it, right? AD, Exchange, SharePoint, Link, um, you know, file, file, file management systems, document management systems, information management systems, custom applications, uh, off-the-shelf applications. You know, we have it all. Most, most big shops have it all. And what we've seen is that with a little bit of work and a little bit of imagination, the tools available from Amazon will let you move all those workloads to the cloud without, uh, without too much trouble and with a lot of a lot of real value at the back end. So just wanted to share that. Thank you for your time.